Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of the Brain Food Show. I'm Simon, my co-host Damon is here as well, and today, you know, we covered this. Is it okay to say we covered this on our YouTube channel? Uh, well, we covered it in the original, well, I should say we covered about 30% of the, well, maybe like 50% overall on the original podcast when you were talking like all official. Do you want to do that voice that you used to do? Well, it was because when I first met you, I was narrating audiobooks mostly. Yeah. So uh, oh, if I've got some text in front of me, you know, you could be like, they also beefed up security around it, including this year having two guards. Oh, wait, this isn't a quote. I'm reading one of the <laughs> notes, but this kind of thing, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So I think we did like five or like a bit of it five years ago because I was reading through this and I'm like, this all seems real familiar. Yeah. But then there's but like- also stuff I don't remember. Yeah, much expanded upon and better and not in the, you know, because, yeah, the, the other version. This is way better. It's a Wonderful Life, part yeah. one. We're splitting the episode today into two parts. Because it's, it's super long. Substantial. Yeah. 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 What else do we need to say? This is probably, a, is this our Christmas episode? These are our Christmas episodes this year. And we, for those who haven't listened, they should go back and listen to the Sledgehammer, of, uh, Sledgehammer for the Poor Man's Child, which is one of my favorites that we've done. Mm, that was a good one. Um, it's really good. Go listen to it. Or The Truce, which was another good one. The 12 Days of Christmas. Like, what is that song about? And you, you know, you've heard like lots of mostly myths. People just say the myth of, of what's the origin of that song. But we got the mm-hmm. real story and it's really interesting. And then The Christmas Gift and a Riot, which was really good. Um, then I think one of, one of I don't know, one of the funnier ones was tradi- uh, Christmas Traditions, The Crapper, The Poop Log, The Parasitic Poop Twig, and much, much more. Which we also discussed the uh, Yavel Goat. Um, which actually survived 2017 and 2018 and is still this standing is this year. This is my favorite one of all of these. Yeah. I know how much you love that poor man's child, like that really thoughtful piece about yeah. Dickens. Yeah. I like the one where the drunk guys try to burn down the giant <laughs> yeah. goat. Yeah. And like the poop log and stuff. Is that that in, was, that's in the Christmas traditions episode. Yeah, that one's all, that one's really funny. Okay, it's got awesome. the crapper, you know, the in the poop log and all. It's really funny. And um, the current one, they've actually beefed up security on the goat. Now it actually has two guards that walk around 24 hours a day with ALs. They also have a, a canine dog unit and they're making it tough. But it's two, <laughs> two years it's survived. They probably figured people are going to step up the game this year to try to destroy it. So, you know, they, they, I hope so. I mean, up. I don't, I kind of hope it gets destroyed yeah. because <laughs> I don't know. I, I want to see the world burn. Yeah. Um, this was, that was last year's Christmas episode, right? Did I show you this? Oh, yeah. You got it. Your listeners. Your friend. Yeah. A friend of mine, Spanish. And uh, we were talking about the Spanish, the, the Spaniards have this tradition of a caganer, which is just a guy taking a dump. And they apparently have these little tchotchkes of them. And so I, when, while we were, I think while we were recording that episode, I sent my friend a message and I was like, dude, can you get me one of those Caganers? Yeah. And he's like, really? I'm like, yeah. And so he bought me one. And yeah. it's, uh, it sits on my desk. Yeah. Along. Another thing I bought. Look at that. You see that? It's a three wolf muck. You know that? <laughs> three wolf team. <laughs> yeah. It's a random stuff on my desk. Yeah. So that was, yeah, that was last year's Christmas. Go back and listen to those. And yeah, also leave us a review if you like this show. You can do that on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts ready. When we get a thousand reviews on iTunes US, which I think we're a few hundred away from now, right? We got to be sitting at what, five, six hundred reviews right now ish, I figure. And when we get to a thousand, we're going to give away a thousand dollar Amazon gift voucher. And that isn't just for Amazon US or wherever you, you know, wherever you leave your review, we'll gather them from the main podcast platforms and uh, we'll find someone to give that away to. So, and yeah, uh, just that. for the record, 
last year or last episode we mentioned that we weren't going to check the Rwanda iTunes uh, because no one was going to leave a review. Oh, yeah. It turns out there was a person from Rwanda that chimed in and was like, um, come on, guys. <laughs> You've got a huge fan base in Rwanda, <laughs> which was a genuine surprise to me. I feel like I'd choose a random country where our show probably isn't listened to. Yeah. And like some guy writes in and is like, I listen from Rwanda. Yeah. Pretty awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, where are we starting today? You got a quick fact? We are going to start with a quick fact, and this one also Christmas related. So in 1947, the film Miracle on 34th Street comes out, debuts era. Uh, you would think, you know, Miracle on 34th Street, surely it came out at Christmas, right? But no. Is it, is it going gonna, gonna to gonna surprise you when I say that I've never seen this? Really? Not even like Dude, the remake yeah. or like, you do you at least know what it's about? I've never even heard of it, to be honest. <laughs> I've seen, isn't there the Miracle Before Christmas? I feel like I've heard of that. I mean, maybe they use the Miracle on... 34 Street. There's miracles. Maybe they used a different no, name. In the, I feel like I'd know that. Yeah, yeah well, you'd think Maybe. this would be a Christmas movie because it's, I mean, it is a Christmas movie. But instead, it was a summer blockbuster because debuting on June 4th, 1947, because a, a guy from 20th Century Fox, the executive there, Daryl F. Zanuck, he felt it would actually perform better in the summer because more people go to movies in, in the summer. So, but the problem here, if they're advertising a, a, a Christmas movie in summer, like they figured a lot of people wouldn't come you know, in the first place. So they went to elaborate efforts to basically mask the fact that it was a Christmas movie, and including if you look at like, if you look at their posters and stuff, there's no, it very much, there's no reference to Christmas anywhere on there. Other than there is a guy who yeah. kind of looks like Santa, but of course he's in a suit, uh, you know, just like a regular suit, like a business suit. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily know that. And so I'm it, looking at the poster of it in the notes now. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a dude with a big beard. That's yeah. it. Yeah. And then the it's two. No, there's no Christmas cheer. Yeah. And then uh, also in the movie trailer, they went to great lengths to hide the fact that it, it was it was a Christmas movie. And how did they must have cut it really selectively to make that? Because, I mean, it, the whole thing's a Christmas movie. I always find like whenever when I watch a Christmas movie, you know, just because I'm looking for something to watch or whatever, and I watch it in the summer, I always feel in my mind it's going to be a lot more disconcerting than it actually is. And I watch it and it just doesn't really, you know, it's like, yeah. oh yeah, of course. Or when you watch a TV series mm-hmm. and, you know, they'll have like, a, you know, it's winter or it's a Christmas episode or something. Yeah. I always think, oh yeah, it's going to make me miss nostalgia for Christmas or whatever. It's going to be weird. And then it's just never, it just never even registers for me. See, I never even watch, like I have the rule, like all Christmas movies and some like also like New Year's, like, um, like when Harry Met Sally, I use is like a New Year's one. Uh, those I only watch them between Thanksgiving and, and New Year's. That's it. So it's like, I've seen, I, I've seen when Harry Met Sally. Really? <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, right? That's a great movie. Um, that's it's hilarious. A great movie. Yeah. So there's one that one one movie that's a classic that you've seen. So you limit when you can watch these movies to a specific time of year. Yeah, yeah, yeah completely. And so I never. Even... What about you know the classics like Die Hard? <laughs> yeah, well, Die Hard. Yes. Because I mean, you. I feel I like I need to watch that at least twice a year. So <laughs> no. you don't want to watch it twice at Christmas. <laughs> no, it is just a just a Christmas one. Um, for the first one, the others, wow. of course, any time of year works, but. In any event, speaking of the movie trailer for A Miracle on 34th Street, so you might at this point be wondering why are movie trailers called that when they usually are almost always before movies in modern times, unless of course it's like online or something when it's just like posted to YouTube or whatever. So it turns out the first movie trailer ever appearing in a theater was on November or in November of 1913. It was made by one Nils Granlin. He was the advertising manager of Marcus Lowe Theaters in the U.S., 
And uh, the trailer was not for another movie, but it was actually for a musical, The Pleasure Seekers, which was uh, to open on Broadway shortly thereafter. And so he basically just included short clips of the rehearsals of the musical as to just sort of an advertisement. And of course, this appeared at the end of the, of the thing rather than the beginning. I'm just kind of after the film to entice people to go to this other thing. And so that, that said, uh, cause it like trails the movie. Yeah. So you get, it's kind of like, uh, yeah, it's kind of like at the end of like a YouTube video where you, you recommend another video like, Hey, you like this? Why don't forget to subscribe, this? smash that like button. So that said, well, that is the, the first, uh, the first ever in a theater. There was actually one trailer supposedly before this, uh, according to Lou Harris, who is an executive at Paramount in the 1960s, he claims the first ever trailer to show anywhere was at a New York area amusement park in 1912 when just a random concession worker, which I couldn't find the name for, uh, he supposedly hung up a white sheet and showed the serial The Adventures of Kathleen. And uh, at the end of the episode, he just then put... Uh, so at the end of the episode, Kathleen is thrown into a lion's den, apparently. And so then the concession oh. worker just spliced in the real part of the reel for the next film, the next in there, and he just put the text over it that says, Does she escape the lion's pit? And... Uh, mm-hmm. This this was the first ever apparently uh, rudimentary attempt at a trailer anywhere, and yeah, OG clickbait. Yeah, totally. It's like you won't believe what happened. <laughs> Can next. you find it out? So yeah, this uh, this pretty much this caught on pretty quickly and began uh, trailers began appearing in lots of films at the end to advertise. It was particularly in these cartoon shorts and serials where there was you know these sort of series where you'd kind of it end on a climactic situation like that, you know, Kathleen, and and you'd want to see what happens next. So they would just kind of tease it a little bit. Very there. exciting. Yeah, but then. Um, oh, I should also mention, so when did people actually first call it trailers? And that actually wouldn't happen until June 2nd, 1917 is the first known instance of this. Uh, I mean, obviously it happened before this or, or they wouldn't have called it this in, in the New York Times, but it stated. A committee of the National Association of the Motion Picture Industry yesterday began sending films known as trailers advertising the bonds to all of the 15,000 or so movie theaters in the United States. These films are 70 feet in length and will be attached to longer films that are shown at every performance. Yeah, so, it's interesting they measure the yeah. length of a trailer by you know physical distance yeah. rather than saying oh, it's three minutes long. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah it's kind of interesting. Yeah. But yeah, so as you might imagine, it didn't take long for for um, when you're talking about like full film advertisements instead of instead of looking at like the next in a serial to actually move the you know theater uh, companies. They started thinking, well, wait, if we put it at the beginning, it's more people are going to watch. Um, so they started doing that by the captive audience. Yeah. Yeah. So by the end of the 1930s, this switch had been, I feel made. I feel if we started doing this on our YouTube videos, if we just started each one by, Hey, I know you wanted to watch this, but how about you watch something completely different? It It wouldn't be super popular. No, it wouldn't. And it's kind of, um, yeah, it is interesting because film, film, you know, previews or trailers, they are just advertisements, but people generally enjoy them. Although I I hate it because I hate like if I want to go see a movie, I don't want to see the trailer because they give away the entire movie usually in the thing or like all the most pivotal scenes. And I just hate that. So I'm just like, if I want, I'll only watch them if I actually want, if like I'm on the fence, like I'm not sure I want to see that movie, but if I already know I want to see it, I don't want to see the trailer ever. Like I hate that they do that. Do you feel this is a more modern thing? Because I feel, and I, there are some trailers today, which I watch and it's like, Okay, great. This isn't giving away the entire plot to the movie because I feel, you know, you're absolutely right. 80% of them do. I just wonder, is that a modern thing? Because I don't remember it always being like that. No, I think part of the problem is the actual whatever, I can't remember the organization now actually has a restriction on the length of the trailers, except for each each uh, studio is allowed one exception where they're allowed. I can't remember. It's like two minutes or two minutes and 30 seconds or something is the max. And they're allowed one exception to go longer. Uh, but... 
when talking online trailers, they're allowed to do anything they want there as far as length. And so I think that might be like a modern because everyone watches them. You know, you watch most of them online most of the time. And so there they can go as long as they want. So they tend to just tease, you know, they do multiple ones each longer. And then right before the movie, they kind of give the one that, you know, gives away the whole movie. So maybe it is kind of like a modern thing. I don't like it. Yeah, and I'm watching them. And, it, you know, I'll always watch the trailer, but it'll get about 30 seconds. And it'll be like, stop, stop, stop. Yeah. No more. Yeah. You're giving away the whole bloody movie. Yeah, but when you go to the theater, you can't just like close your eyes and like plug your ears or whatever. It look kind of weird. Oh, I always I always show up like 15 minutes late. Oh. Yeah, it's just trailers. And I don't know how it is in the States, but they've got this really annoying thing. Like, I feel like I'm an old man waxing nostalgic for the past. But I swear it used to be commercial advertisements like, you know, drink Coca-Cola, then check out this new movie from whoever, then your movie. Now it's commercial advertisements movie trailers, yeah. a couple more commercial advertisements, and then the film. I used to be fine showing up, especially when the trailers didn't give away the whole movie. I'd like to see the trailers, but I wouldn't want to see the commercials. But now it's like, if you want to see the trailers, you've got to then watch commercials afterwards. So am I am I having advertising sandwiched in between my advertising? Yeah, pretty much. And I mean, like, you know, like the theaters don't, they don't, especially the bigger movies, they don't really make much. They have no leverage is the problem, at least in the US. That's how it is. Uh, they have no negotiating leverage except for like the major, major chains because of various rules that actually we're going to do a podcast episode on at some point. So I won't spoil it too much here. But there's a reason, uh, you know, theaters don't make a ton of money um, on the movie, on the actual ticket sales. Like, and, it, you know, it's an interesting story. We'll get into it later. But, but yeah. So they make money from the concessions, like popcorn it, and stuff. Yeah. But there's, a, there's some legal reasons why, why it is that way and why they have no leverage and why a lot of theaters would make so much more money if they did other things. Like some of them are starting to do like sporting events. And uh, just random, you know, you can show up and do like company parties and things like this because they actually make a lot more money off those types of things. It's just not you don't get the mass audience. You know, it's just more like one off things. But we'll get into that on a, on a later you... podcast episode. Sorry, I know you don't want to get into it, but I just got to ask you one more question. Yeah. Do you in the States or uh, maybe it's, or have you, Dave, personally heard of it where they film theater performances and live stream them? to cinemas yeah and this this sort of thing they make they make more money on that sort of thing because you know uh, they they just actually yeah. get more the tickets are also super expensive yeah like they're twice as much as going to the movies yeah yeah and they actually get a good cut of those instead of like the the regular movies which they make almost nothing especially at first um especially for the bigger movies um that bring in all the audience so i don't get it though it does uh, what are your thoughts about this personally have you been to see one of these no, but I think, I mean, it's kind of, I know it's kind of genius and a lot of theaters are starting to do like where they'll add, they'll also do like comfortable seats where they have like meals that like proper meals they'll bring to you. So it's like almost like a oh, restaurant yeah. and a, a thing. And so, I mean, that's, I do that. They're getting, they're getting innovative to make actual good cuts of the money, you know? But yeah. I'm just, I want to go back to the theater thing because I just yeah. want to complain about this on the podcast because I, I always have this debate with my parents and I know we're so far off topic <laughs> right now, but the way I feel about theater in general. And I like theater. Like I did a lot of theater through school and all of this stuff. I feel like movies are the evolution of theater. So yeah. if we go to the movies and it's like, okay, it's like theater, except because it's the 21st century, what we can do is we can do it many, many times from many different angles and get it all nice and perfect and then sort out the pacing and the music and everything like that in post and then present you a beautiful story, which is a movie. Yeah. Whereas theater's like, well, we'll do it live and we'll do it sort of with sound, maybe if there's an orchestra or just sound effects and, you know, the lighting's kind of bad and everyone's really far away. 
Yeah, I'm like, I thought movies were an evolution of this. So when you go and live stream a theater performance to a movie theater, I'm like, okay, so we've just got the worst of both worlds. Yeah, well, because we're not even appreciating it live. That's true. Because yeah, if it's live, then it's like you get like I mean, if you go to something like The Lion King or something, which I mean, like the sets and stuff, like you say, they're they're not very good. Even I mean, they it's stupid to watch, but they're, but they're the fantastic. Mu- but the but music to a movie. Yeah, that's what. Yeah, but the music for it to hear it live is like it is way more impressive. But yeah, as you say, if you're watching it in a theater, I disagree. It's not. It's I not even a, disagree with that. Really. I don't like live music. Live music's fine. Studio music is more impressive. Well, it's I, more refined. It's I think it perfect. depends. It depends it's on the creeped. artist. Because, like, even when you're talking like that, I don't know, like a Lion King, the, the whole production. I feel like it's better in that case. But also, you do have some artists like a Keb Mo or something who you go see him live. Way better than his albums. Like, I mean, his albums are good. But like, go see him live, and you can see him. Mul- I've seen him multiple times live, and he does like different shows, like completely different feel to them. Like one, he was literally just him with his guitar, and then his neighbor on the bass. And this is like a major guy, and it's just all kind of unplugged. And then one was like out on a beach, like with you know, there's still a couple thousand people there, but it was like then it was more like a party type performance. And it, I don't know, it's good. Some some performers I feel like can do that, and others, of course. If they're dancing around on stage, like guaranteed, they're just lip singing because you can't dance around on stage and then continue to sing. Um, so, you know, then you really are just getting the recording and you just get to watch them dance around. And I don't know. Yeah. People like that. Because I don't know. Why are we here? Yeah. I mean, people like to join in with like groups of people and like feel like you're, I don't know, watching it together. But yeah, I, feel, I find that to be kind of stupid. But, you know. Agreed. I'm sorry. That was <laughs> off in the weeds, but rant over. Thank you. Yeah. Where were we? Anyways, so film trailers. So the first one, it was actually, this is an interesting, just a little aside to the aside, a company called National Screen Service was, the, was the first one to make these crude film advertisements. So like in mass, so they, they started, what they did basically was take, they would transfer film stills without the permission of the film studios. They were totally just ripping these things off and then selling this footage that they would cut up to then show in theaters and stuff. And so rather than sue this company, the, the, studios actually loved it and they they actually just started providing directly the, the footage instead of them needing to go get it themselves uh and then and then this was they had like a near monopoly for quite a long time uh, on movie trailers for this reason because studios would just give them the footage so they had it first and all that sort of business um so this it wasn't until the 1920s that studios themselves actually were like hey we should just make the trailers instead of having an outside company do it um and then make money on it so um i just thought that was kind of interesting because it's it's a little bit like Hollywood today is like one of the most lawsuity, like they'll sue you at the drop of a hat, whether you did something wrong or not. Yeah. And, but when you talk about like the start of an industry, it's always the opposite. It's like, Hey, we're all innovating here. Let's, you know, create some cool stuff. And I feel like there's, you know, that, that happens a lot in various have, industries. Do you remember when we, we used like a still image of like a trailer yeah. of a movie in one of our videos yeah. and some Hollywood studio manually claims the copyrights. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, guys, no. And you can't and one, say no. You can't say no. You're talking about your movie in a positive way. Yeah. And if you say no, that's that's clearly fair use or you say no, like maybe if it's not, even, maybe we're not even infringing on you anywhere because sometimes that happens too, where it's just like a false positive and they'll, they'll still be like, no, I disagree. You know, because because they have yeah. nothing to lose. What are you going to do? Sue them? Like, yeah. no. Take me to court. Yeah. You know, you're not going to do it no matter what. Yeah. Like there's another where we, we used a quote from a book, you know, the same thing. A quote from a book, oh, yeah. which is perfectly fine. And we name the book and we're promoting the book, talking about it. And we still got it taken down in that video. I think we actually had to take it down completely. Like uh, that was... Was that the Beatles one? No, that one. That one. Yeah, that one. The, I don't know how much law fees that author racked up for that one. Because 
we had so many back and forth with his lawyer about it. And then what the funny part about it was the, the author himself, before we ever posted that video, came on today, I found out the website and complimented me for the piece and thanked me for mentioning his book. And then later we're get, we make the video and his law team is like, yeah, we're going to sue you. Uh, and it's just like, yeah, okay. Um, but yeah, that one ended up working out, but it was so many back and forth with the lawyer and you know, they're charging every time they're thinking about that. So, and then finally to re- it was resolved to just, I don't remember what we had to do, but it got resolved somehow. I don't even remember, but yeah. I, didn't, I, I, we've had a few of these, like the long back and forths with lawyers. Yeah. And I'm like, well, this email takes me five minutes to write where it's like, sure, we'll do what you say. And then it's like an email follow-up with 14 people on the CC or yeah. with like, you know, yeah. that law firm's name.com. You're like, this is, this is costing whoever, you know, is paying these bills. Yeah. There was funny one that was uh, not that long ago. I won't say which one it was, but I actually made a little game of it of seeing how long I could keep them <laughs> on and just email back and forth. And just, I, I tried to drag it out as much as possible because it was really annoying on that one. Uh, so, and that, that worked out and we ended up having to reissue that video, but it all worked out in the end. Yeah. And well, of course they're going to continue Yeah, because they're, they were, they're, ha- they're, they're totally not- happy to continue the conversation. I feel like the, the lack of financial oversight there, yeah. you know, I guess there's a point where you're so rich that you're and just like, whatever this, this person you was, know, here's and, my law team. Yeah. And this person, clearly this yeah. legal team, I mean, they don't even care if they're actually doing something productive. They just want to be able to show the person, Hey, we did this much we found all these copyright infringers for you and all this. And, you know, they just, you know, bill them, you know, quarterly or something. Uh, and the, the person yeah. involved probably didn't even look at the bill. It's just like, yeah, whatever. hundred grand. Okay, here you go. I don't even think they get the bill. It probably just goes to the person yeah. who manages their finances. True. And never even looks into it themselves at all. But, yeah. No. Just make another movie. Okay, cool. so we are full of tangents today. Aren't we, we are. We got to speed it up because <laughs> this is really long. Yeah. So we'll early, be here all day. early trailers. So what did they actually show in these early ones? And it was actually for quite a long time, up until about the 1960s, it was just text overlaid with uh, kind of explaining the general plot of the film. And then they would just use a little stock footage that they would kind of splice in with this this text footage, like no voice. And up to the 1960s, where I mean, you think at some point someone would think voiceover would be superior, but nobody, this was the way it was always done. So people just kept doing that until such people as Stanley Kubrick and Arthur Lipset and most notably Andrew J. Kuhn started changing things. So Kubrick was he was the one who kind of popularly introduced the montage format. And then Kuhn, he did a ton of stuff with his company. Uh, so he introduced the narrator, which actually one of his most famous in the early going was James Earl Jones. It was a very young James Earl Jones. And so he basically got mm-hmm. rid of the text and decided to use James Earl Jones, which naturally was a huge hit. People loved that switch. And by the end of the 1960s, his actual, his Coons Kaleidoscope Films actually was the largest and most successful trailer maker uh, making film firm in the world. And so, and this, they actually held that position for the top one for over three decades. And even today, if you look at most of the, the top companies that do trailers, uh, they all are, for, are run by or formerly owned by former Kaleidoscope Films employees. Um, so they still kind of control the, the trailer thing. And in these, if people have never noticed, almost all trailers have the same basic story it's basically the same basic structure and it's very similar to just the films and plays themselves it's a three-act structure so act one is setting up the premise of the story act two is highlight the main plot features of the story and act three then generally finishes with a really powerful piece of music accompanied by like a visual montage and little you know snippets of the film and so depending on the film it might be like emotional suspenseful action-packed or like if it's a comedy it might just be like little humorous points in the film (laughs) you know and then that that's basically every trailer more or less follows uh, this format almost exactly have you, so have you seen those recut trailers where they take movies 
and they recut them to be, you know, yeah. a different genre. Yeah, those are great. Did you see the one for The Shining? No, I haven't. Oh, it's so good. It's like Jack just wants to get away. <laughs> it's like do 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 and it like respins it as like a Christmas movie or whatever. <laughs> it's really good. Yeah. I've seen ones with like Harry Potter as a horror film and stuff like that. It's it's pretty good. Yeah. Um but yeah. Or uh Titanic 2, where they <laughs> cut together other movies that DiCaprio's been in. Yeah. And they make it as if he's been brought up from the bottom of the ocean, frozen in ice, and then reanimated. <laughs> It's incredible, especially this was maybe what ten years ago, like early days of YouTube video. Yeah. And yep. it was it was really good. That's how I feel like like how it should have ended before YouTube. They were they had their own like they hosted their own videos and everything. They're a huge YouTube channel now and everything. But uh, they they too were in the in the early days of like online video. They were like kings of of like that. Like you know they would cut up and make their little little animations and stuff. Which I mean nowadays, if you look at their old ones, they're kind of crap compared to what their new ones. But at the time, it was like this is hilarious. Like more people should do stuff like this, but you know, it wasn't yeah. really a thing back then. But yeah, so moving back to Miracle on 34th Street, which is the what this quick fact was supposed to originally be about. Not only was it uh, the whole summer thing hurting its its uh, its performance in the box office in the early going, but it also got the dreaded B rating by the Catholic Legion of Decency uh, due <laughs> th- this B rating. This this is That's a thing. Yeah, this meant it was morally objectionable in part because the mother in the film was divorced. And so they, oh, they, God. they got the, what? They got, yeah, it was like the R rating of the day. So that's, so, um, they did eventually merge the B and C rating into O, which meant morally offensive. So that was that, that rating. And this Legion of Decency, Decency ratings before like the, the wider rating systems that we have today, which will also be on a future episode of the podcast. I was going to put it here, but it was just too, too long. This one's already too long. So uh, that we will talk about it, but that actually was huge. Like to to who would go watch the movie? So if they got the B or later the O, it was like no. It's like a, it's like a sick and twisted. If these people came back to if these people came, you know, to yeah. the future to today, they'd like have a stroke. Yeah, yeah, seriously. Especially because yeah. you look at the difference between like the European ones. I feel like um, I don't know if this is like actually true, but I've heard is that basically in Europe, if you have like nudity and stuff, it's like yeah, whatever. Uh, you know, it's not, it doesn't get the higher ratings. Uh, whereas in the US, it's like, oh, that's R, that's NC-17 or something. Whereas in the US, uh, you know, you have like this m- people blowing off each other's heads. And this is like, yeah, PG-13, whatever, it's fine. But in, <laughs> but in Europe, it's like, wait, they're blowing off their heads. This should be like a higher rating. Is that like actually a thing or just true. something? Yeah, there'll be nudity yeah. and it won't get an 18. Like there can be nudity and it will be, we have 12A, 15 and 18. Yeah. And I think that would get a 15 rating. Yeah. Um, maybe a 12. Nah, a 15. And then if there's like lots of violence, yeah, that'll be an 18. Yeah. See, I, th- I, I feel re- like that makes a lot more sense because you got, like, you know, people like blowing each other up and stuff. I feel like that, you know, I don't know. That whole thing, I think, makes a lot more sense than the than the US system of like, oh, there's a nipple. That's definitely an R, you know, like. Yeah. Well, who was it? There was, was it a discussion on Reddit where it was uh, men's nipples photoshopped onto women's nipples? So there'd be a, you know, a woman with, you know, her breasts out and they'd be like, is it nudity if we Photoshop a man's nipples onto her nipples? Yeah, I don't remember what the resolution was, but it was a pretty good discussion because, well, technically that's okay. That should be okay. And with today's CGI, you can make that possible. Uh, Is that our quick fact? That is our quick fact um, for today. Then I'll, I'll do what everyone's been waiting for. Today's sponsor is Blinkist. The first 100 people to go to Blinkist.com forward slash brain food will get a week to try it out. You'll get 25% off as well. 
If you like that week and you're like, oh, I do want the full membership because it turns out Simon was right. Blinkist is actually amazing. It now, is actually pretty amazing. It's pretty great. <laughs> I've uh, been enjoying I, it because you don't have a lot of time, you know, and so, uh, you know, it does. It, and sometimes like I'll just, you know, get a summary of the book. So then in the end, like, oh, that one's more interesting or like a lot of books. Like, oh, what was the one I listened to? I remember it was a business one of some sort. It was it's a really popular one, like the habits of something or other. And like, yeah, Stephen I started Kobe, really, Seven yeah, Habits Highly Effective People. Yeah. I started listening to the Audible version Solid. and I was like, eh, you know, like it's just he just rambles on. Like I feel like this could be summed up. So I don't know. There's lots of books like that that uh, yeah, Blink is handy for. I feel I don't know, whenever nonfiction books get really thick and although there's yeah, even the seven habits. That's a pretty thick book, but there is yeah. quite a bit of waffle in there. <laughs> yeah, it's so much, so much. There's just like, just give me the seven habits. Let's boom, boom, boom. Let's get this done. Anyway, so Blinkist, if you didn't get it from what we're saying, is basically they take a, a long ass book, like the seven habits, and they compress it down into 15 minute summaries. Now there's 15 minutes of audio. There's also text. So you can choose whether you want to read or listen. Uh, I've got one open here. Have you heard of this book, Factfulness? I thought you would like this. No, I haven't. Um, based on like the sort of stuff and, you know, love for data. Mm-hmm. And it's basically this guy, this book this guy wrote. And he says, yeah, the world's actually pretty good when you look at how things were in history. It's so true. You know, we complain a lot, but the world is really pretty wonderful. I mean, there's plenty of stuff wrong and tons of stuff we yeah. need to fix. Yeah. But so, you know, we've done all right. I mean, the environment, I think, is a bit of a mess and stuff like that. Yeah. But he's like, there's loads of stuff that's going really, really well. Yeah. So Blinkist have a 15 minute summary of this book. And like I say, you can read or listen. I like the audio ones because, you know, I'm double busy. So instead, of, I, <laughs> I don't even read the summaries. I listen to the summaries. Anyway, 8 million people are currently using Blinkist to get the best insights and to get to know thousands of books. From self-help to business and health, whatever you're into, it's on there. Like I said, I like it. It just gives you key insights. I revisit a lot of books that I've read in the past. I will also, you know, uh, sometimes just get the summary. Or if I really like a summary, I'll be like, I can go expand that. And I'll go pick up the audiobook or the actual physical book if I'm feeling old-fashioned. So, like I said, the first 100 people to go to Blinkist.com forward slash brain food, you'll get a week to try it out. You'll also get 25% off if you want the full membership. Again, seven-day trial, cancelled anytime at Blinkist.com forward slash brain food. And let's get into our main content today. So today, going back to 1943, there is an author by the name of Philip Van Dorenstern, who at this point in history, like he had just mostly been known for historical writing. So he's one of the world's leading experts in the American Civil War after doing many books on that. And so he sits mm. down and he decides to write a fiction story. So it's a 4,000-word short story about a man named George who's going to commit suicide by jumping off of a bridge, but then he gets stopped by a random stranger who just strikes up a conversation with him. And then the mysterious person learns that George wishes to, he just wishes he wasn't born ever. And so he says, okay, your, your wish is granted. And he, and he does. And George soon discovers that you know, no one recognizes him. No, he'd never been alive, apparently. And the problem was, of course, that a lot of people's life he found was, was a lot worse off because he was never around, including most notably his little brother who had drowned because he had not been there to save him. And so in the end, George asks to have everything changed back and the stranger goes ahead and uh, does that. And uh, so this story, you might you might be recognizing it. But um, at this point, Stern did. He, he goes to find a publisher for it. It's a 21 page story at this point, but nobody, no one wants to publish it. So instead, he wants to get some use out of it. So he just makes a Christmas card style gift. So he has 200 copies of the short story printed and sent out and he sends it out in December of 1943 to a bunch of friends, family and acquaintances. And the like, and so this story was called "The Greatest Gift 
And uh, it was actually made later um, in 1944. He did actually get it published by Reader's Scope magazine. And then it was also published in Good Housekeeping magazine uh, as The Man Who Was Never Born. But it would have been forgotten today had it not been for one of the recipients of the original gift. So he sends this gift out, which is interesting here, as a gift to other people. And it ends up Mm -hmm. coming back to him and making him a boatload of money because it gets in the hands of producer David Hemstein, Hemstead, I should say, uh, who worked at RKO Pictures, and he really liked the story, so he then offered, after some negotiation, Stern accepts a $10,000 offer, about $144,000 today, for to sell the motion picture rights to RKO Pictures. And this was just four months after he sent out the Christmas card, so quite... Dude, quite I got to up my Christmas card game, apparently. <laughs> yeah, and 10000 bucks or $144,000 today for 4,000 words. I produce like 4,000 words every day. Like, you know... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm apparently in the wrong industry <laughs> or something. You should just start writing pieces and just mailing them out. Just tons of Christmas yeah. cards. I was actually adding it up a few months back. I know I was saying I had like the record of, I don't remember what it was now, but it was like, wait a minute, this is like a whole book that I wrote in the last month. Like, I'm seriously, what am I doing wrong here? I need to actually, you know, write books or something. Be a lot more money probably. So in any event, uh, so initially RKO Pictures takes it and then they end up, they various adaptations of the script of the screenplay were written uh, and initially they were thinking Cary Grant they they were slated to play the role of George but in the end they decided not to make the film at all and sold it to Fa- Frank Capra's production company in 1945 also for $10,000 so they didn't really make any money other than a little bit off inflation I suppose or actually they lose a little bit of money off inflation either way so uh Capra's company then adapts the story even further and makes it into It's a Wonderful Life which debuted on December 20th 1946 and so Lionel Barrymore, which she plays. Have you seen, have you, you haven't seen It's a Wonderful Life, have you? I knew this question was coming. I was like, people must be wondering if I've seen it by now. I have not. Yeah. Okay. So there's a character. I definitely have not. Dude, it's from the 1940s. It's so good. Like, it's seriously like. Is it in color? There is a color version if you want to see a color version. I've not seen it. They colorized it? They did. It was quite controversial because this is considered like one of the greatest films of all time. Um, People were a little bit controversial at the time, so. Uh, either way, yes, this this movie is amazing. It's like in my top three of all time. And it is one that I only watch on Christmas as well, actually, Christmas Eve. So uh, Lionel Barrymore, he plays the, the antagonist, the main antagonist, Mr. Potter. Uh, and so he wanted Jimmy Stewart to play George Bailey and Frank Capra wanted Jimmy Stewart. But the problem was Jimmy Stewart didn't want the part. And then he was actually considering at the time giving up acting altogether uh, instead to career uh, pursue a career in aviation. So he started out in aviation kind of loosely as a student of Princeton. He actually was an architectural student, um, got a degree in it, actually. And uh, he ended up getting awarded a full scholarship for his graduate work for his thesis on airport design, which was kind of an interesting choice. Jack of all trades. Yeah. Oh, he is. We'll get into that more. Like he did so much stuff. Uh, So then as for flying directly, he eventually in 1935 got his private pilot certificate so he could fly cross country to visit his parents a lot. And he used... Back then, there wasn't really a lot for navigation, like, you know, I mean, other than just like get out your map and your compass and all this sort of business and do that, which is, you know, kind of a tricky way to do it. So he actually used railroad tracks, um, which was, you know, people would use towns and rail, railroad tracks. Yeah, because they go from town to town. So you're, you're going to, you know, could, you're going to be seeing some things that you recognize on the map and everything. So this is what he, he did. And so I'd, we're going to do another side here, but this is really interesting. So in 1929, 21, going back a little bit. So, I mean, it was really hard to navigate by air at the time. And, you know, it's not at all anymore. But uh, back then, it totally was. And the, I should say, it's not hard anymore if you have, like, 
equipment, but like if you don't, it's still super hard. Yeah. Um, so everything looks different from way up high. So uh, I, I assumed it was the equipment making things easier rather than just, you know, something yeah. else. Yeah, no, if you lose all your equipment, which is kind of a funny thing, because there was a, in my uh, exam or whatever, you know, they grill you for like, I don't know, it was like three or four hours or whatever it was. So they're going over and he's like, there's something called VOR navigation. And he's trying to get me to give the answer to that, like how to actually use that. So he's like, what would you do to navigate from point this point this? And I was like, well, there's a GPS built into the plane. And he's like, what would you do if that failed? And I was like, well, there's a second GPS built into the plane. And he's independent from the first. And he's like, what would you do if that failed? And I was like, well, I got my tablet. Take out my phone. He's got the GPS. <laughs> and, and then, and then he was like, what would you do if that failed? And I was like, well, I got my phone. And he was like, well, what if the internet or whatever didn't work? And I'm like, well, it still mostly works. And also like the phone itself works. So I could always call someone like, you know, like the ATC, they know where I'm at. They can see me. And he's like, oh, and that was the other thing. I was like, I, I could use my radio to call ATC and just ask, you know, I could, I didn't, and they could tell me where I am uh, and, uh, and help me find places. And he's like, what would you do if all of that failed? And I was just like, well, that's very unlikely. I'm just like, well, Sorry, <laughs> just accept that I'm going to crash. I knew what he was trying to get me to say, but I was, I was just being difficult because it was funny because I really feel like the VOR thing is just like, this is pointless. We don't need to learn this. This is stupid. There's no scenario in which I lose all of those capabilities yes. uh, and then have to resort to VOR. But anyways, going back to the 1921. So it's really difficult, but, the, but they wanted, they wanted, so you have the trains going from like San Francisco to New York, transporting mail and stuff like that. So they, the, the post office, they wanted a way to go to do that faster. And so they thought we could do this by plane, but how do you, how do you make sure it's reliable, you know, so the planes get from point to point and so without getting lost and, and things like this. And now they also have to solve the night problem, right? Flying at night, you can't see anything, especially back then, in, you know, electricity. I mean, I suppose it was a lot of places, but not, you know, as lit up as it is now. And there's lots of places that are just dark, you know, below. So they, they come up with, they want to do an experiment. So they, they do have the pilots navigate just sort of the traditional way at the time. And then, you know, using cities and all this sort of you know, map navigation and compass. But then at night, so they, they started, they put large bonfires from all these small towns in between at various junctions along the way. And then to see, can the planes, you know, they continue flying through the night when they're getting low on fuel, they find their airstrip and then they transfer the mail to another plane that's already fueled up and ready to go. And then they go back. And so these pilots too are using, would then in theory do this route many times. And so they would also become familiar that way. And so it, would this work? And so they ended up doing it and it was a rousing success, except for one pilot did die in the, in the effort no. in a, a snowstorm. Uh, but who's a rousing success, except for the, you know, the, the, the death, the dead people. Yeah. So yeah. He, yeah. And, the, but yeah, so it, but it only took 33 hours and 20 minutes to get from San Francisco to New York They're using the system. And that was 65 hours faster than by train. And so this, this was a successful enough experiment that Congress then, you know, appropriated some money to then advance the system. So they created an electrically lighted airway to replace the bonfires, which, you know, that's better. And uh, so they would put these like every 10 to 30 miles apart. So you could see depending on train, you know, and stuff like that. So you could go. And then at the base of these, the interesting part is they also put these large, like 70 foot long concrete arrows at the base, which are painted really bright yellow. And these arrows would point mm. to the next beacon. So like if it was cloudy, that would also give you kind of a general way to go. Like if you couldn't see the next one because it's, you know, foggy or whatever, uh, bad weather. And so, you know, it would just point you to the rain. So you kind of just go that way and you'll, you'll see it, you know, soon enough because it's not really that far away. And so they did this. And by 1930, they had this beacons and arrows system going, connecting the entire San Francisco to New York. And it was called the Transcontinental Airway System. And this was extremely successful 
but unfortunately, of course, in well, fortunately, I suppose, in 1940s, they did come up with like VOR and uh, v- VHF or whatever systems, which are people, it was a lot handier and you didn't need all this ground stuff other than the beacons themselves. Uh, and so, mm-hmm. yeah, this ended up getting dismantled and everything. But for a little while, this was the way you would do it. And the arrows are still, while they got rid of like the towers with the beacons and everything, you can actually still find, except for on the coastal cities, you can still find the arrows in a lot of places pointing, like if you want to follow this this route, you know, if you're just flying around just for fun to follow it. Oh, that's um, cool. Yeah. And they got rid of the ones on the coast because they didn't want, um, particularly like after World War II and during World War II, they, they didn't want like enemy, <laughs> enemy. Right. Yeah, enemy planes, if they invaded, then to be able to have this route going through the U.S. So they dismantled the ones by the coast. But you can still find these stone beacons everywhere, or stone markers everywhere. So it's kind of fun. So anyway. What does VOR stand for? You mentioned it like six times. I don't remember something. I really don't remember. It's not it's important. Really that, that it's not important so, and it's so outdated. It's so outdated. We might as well be using Morse code, which, by the way, VOR does use Morse code. I'm just going to throw that out there. Um, and you have to turn it to listen to the Morse code at first to make sure it's like the it's you're getting the beacon the correct thing. It's stupid and it's it's going away. It'll go away eventually because it's stupid and no one didn't didn't Morse code a few years ago recent it got taken out of circulation as some important thing that the military had to be able to know how to use or something. Yeah, the I military has their own like, version. Really, of this, just now? Uh, but I think even that's probably going away. But mm. in any event, going back to Jimmy Stewart, so. After his experiences in World War II, at the, and, his, and he also had a, a pretty significant time away from acting, he was doubting his ability to continue to act at a high level. And he also really loved aviation and had gotten re- and really into that more. And so he, he was thinking about trying that out as a career and just get, getting uh, away from acting. But oh, and I should say, how did he actually get into acting in the first place? I just want to talk a little bit about that. So going back to... Um, like the early 1930s, he had, so he, like you said, he had been in like an architectural degree and stuff, but then he had, he, you know, wanted to do acting. So early 1930s, he does have a few like minor parts, but he wasn't really successful until around the 1935 uh, when he did get a screen test with MGM and that started getting him a little more uh, exposure and uh, his, you know, his general easygoing manner. And, you know, apparently his, his acting on, on, in film was very similar. We got a quote from Donna Reed later. Uh, about that it's very similar to the way he just is in real life like he wasn't really playing anyone he was just playing himself so he was very he was very natural at it so now by 1939 so four years later he is a major star at this point and so he's been in the two most notable frank capper films you can't take it with you and mr smith goes to washington which he actually received a nomination for best actor uh, which one of five nominations he ended up winning one eventually and that was for in his uh, 1940 the philadelphia story that he won the, the best actor 1941 mm-hmm. so at this point so the war the war actually has not the, the u.s has not joined the war at this point when stewart decides to step away from acting and join the military the u.s military so it's about 10 months before the uh, the u.s entered the war actually before pearl harbor so and he gets rejected because he's five pounds under required weight he only weighed 143 pounds at this point which i don't know he seemed like he was kind of tall that's pretty light uh, i'm just trying to work out that yeah. in you know regular metric uh, I don't know. Is that 64 like, kilos. That is light. That is light. Yeah, he's a, he is a skinny guy. So not to be dissuaded, he really wanted to join the military anyway. So he he seeks out Don Loomis, I think of MGM or something, who was, he was basically a fitness guy who helps, or at least he was known for helping people add and subtract pounds quickly, uh, depending on their needs for a role or whatever. And so he helped him gain weight quite quickly. And so then Stuart re-enlists to the Army Air Corps. Air Corps. And in March of 1941, he's accepted. So the U.S. is still not in World War II yet, but you know, it's happening. 
Uh, so he initially started out as the rank of private. This talking about like his uh, jack of all trades. Like this is, I think, I don't know, maybe some people like particularly people of his era, of course, know all about this or, you know, the older generation. But I feel like younger generation don't know about this. But he so he starts out as a private. And by the time he had completed training, he advanced the rank of second lieutenant in um, January of 1942. But at this point, because he is a celebrity and he's super experienced flight expertise before he even joined the military, he was. And this is really rare at this time. So they, they pretty much kept him just behind the lines duties at first. So he was a pilot trainer. And he also, he also made promotional videos. But also besides training pilots, he was also one of the investors and collaborators who helped design and build the Thunderbird Field which was a pilot training school built that actually trained about 10,000 pilots during World War II. And so that probably came back to his, you know, like his thesis on airport design probably helped out there. It's got to be super weird, right? If you're like, can you imagine signing up to the military and it would just be like, you know, your uh, comrades, what's the yeah. word for that? Like the person who you go to battle with is just, you know, Tom Cruise. Yeah. He also <laughs> signed up to the military He's because like, he, he was a major star. Yeah, right. Yeah, that would be that would be. And he's just like training these pilots and stuff. And it's like, yeah, I'm your flight instructor today. Let's go up, you know. So, yeah, that would be kind of weird. So, but he did. Jimmy Stewart was not happy about this. He he wanted to go to the front line. So he appeals to his commanding officer eventually. You call me uh, goose in 1940. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, (laughs) So August of 1943, he appeals to his commanding officer and and he goes ahead and uh, you know he's probably using his like his acting ability and his like dramatic scenes, you know, where he's like talking to his commanding officer about how he wants to like contribute to the war effort more directly. But either way, August of 1943, he finds himself on the 703rd Bombardment Squadron in Europe. So initially as a first officer and shortly thereafter promoted to captain. And then uh, he does Mm -hmm. combat operations over Germany and, you know, throughout Europe. And he, he, over the course of this, he rises to the rank of major. And during this time, he participated in 20 official missions and uh, quite a few apparently uncounted missions, apparently on his orders uh, into Nazi occupied Europe flying the B-24 in the lead position of his group to, you know, help inspire them and all that. And so... For, this is so absurd. For reference here, <laughs> for, for you know, 20, you say, oh, 20 emissions and then, you know, uncounted ones. Uh, what That doesn't seem like a lot. But for reference here, one in four of... Uh, so if you were a bomber crew at this time in over Europe, one in four chance of surviving to the 25 mission mark was that for the rotation out. Wow. To, and presumably the... Rot- Wait, one in four chance of surviving? Yeah. At this point in these bombers, these bombers that they're, the Allies were using. So, yeah. And he, okay, he made it yeah, 20 that's... plus unofficial and that was to the 25 mission mark which was uh, for their rotation out. And presumably that's why he had these, uh, I would guess, why he has these uncounted missions because he didn't want to rotate out. And so if he counts them, if he gets to the number, then, you know, they send him back home or whatever. So yeah, either way. Brave guys, imagine as you as you might imagine, he went he or should say it was awarded many medals. So he's three times receiving the Air Medal, um, two times Distinguished Flying Cross, once for the Croix de Guerre from France. I don't know how to pronounce that. Uh, either Croix way, Croix de Guerre, I think, but yeah. I'm not sure. Yes. I think I looked that up recently for another video we made. Uh, yeah, so that was just for people who distinguish themselves with acts of heroism. And so, yeah, by July of 1944, now he's promoted Chief of Staff of the Second Com- Command Bombardment Wing of the Eighth Air Force. And shortly thereafter, he's a, he's a colonel. Uh, he's rising the ranks fast. And so, yeah, and while he did, when, when the war was over and everything, he did go back to acting as, you know, everyone knows. But he still was actually still an active part of the United States Air Force Reserve. And so he still served and, uh, uh, as a reserve commander of the Dobbins Air Reserve Base. And he would, throughout this time, I'll, I'll stop saying all his, you know, steps up the ladder but eventually by the time he retired from there he was a two-star general a major general jimmy stewart the actor like i don't know that blew my mind when i first saw that because i you know 
It's first. pretty intense, right? Yeah. Yeah, he's <laughs> just on the side. Yeah, just on the side. I'm a, I'm a general in the middle. And you look at his picture when he was a general, and he totally looks like a general. He looks nothing like the Jimmy Stewart, like the way he did his, you know, the photo and everything. He just looks like a like a grizzled old general. Why, yeah, he's an actor. Yeah, he, I don't know, he pulled it off. So going, he, the war ends, right? He goes back and he's thinking about the aviation and, you know, his experiences in the war. He's not, he's, he's not in the right headspace to act right away. But Barrymore, he goes to him, he says, no, he, this is a great role. It's a wonderful life. Take it. So he ends up convincing him. And this ended up being, of course, the one he's probably best remembered for uh, throughout his career, this, this one. So speaking of George Bailey, so this character of George Bailey that he plays. So we're next going to talk about the man who Frank Capra based a lot of the elements of character of George Bailey on. And, uh, and also, apparently, Capra had a, in 1932, he had a film called American Madness, which also based on this guy. It's a real life guy. Who, and you'll see as we get into it next uh, what this guy did. And this guy was amazing. And so we're going to dedicate a whole episode on him. And so that's coming up next. Next episode. Next Tune episode. in next yeah. time. Yeah. So I just want to. Did you want to? Did you want to do the? Did you want to do the trailer? The trailer <laughs> outro to tease the next episode. <laughs> like uh, I was the guy who did all those voices. Um, you know, who's I swear did every trailer in like the 1990s. Yeah, yeah. I can't like, remember this summer. Yeah, the in a world with guys. Tune in next time to find out. Yeah. Why would yeah. Uh, I just wanted to add, while we were chatting, I looked up the colorization of It's a Wonderful Life. Uh-huh. Colorization is crazy. If if someone showed it to me, I would not know. Yeah. It's it's really quite something. And especially um, you think how did yeah. how they how did they do it? I mean, I assume they they probably just like have someone paint the a copy of the original thing, but like it was so much easier now with like the modern equipment. But back then, they probably had to do it really painstakingly, uh, every little detail and every uh, little it frame. Was, it was only 10 years ago that they colorized. Oh, okay. Okay. So they did have some, at least. Yeah. But just when you look at the original black and white, I mean, I don't know. This is obviously not amazing podcast, but people should go look this up or maybe see the movie. Because I bet, you know, they're also doing it in 4K or Blu-ray or whatever now. So it must look pretty incredible. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah. Tune in next time, folks. And we'll talk about that mystery guy. Name, guy was based on. We didn't say because oh, it's a mystery man. And why is he? He's he's a really amazing guy, and it's a really good story. So we're going to talk about that. Amazing. So tune in next week. For now, leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, like I said at the beginning of the show, when we get to a thousand on American iTunes, we're going to go through all of the different iTunes where people leave us a review uh, and other podcast platforms and draw someone to win a thousand dollar Amazon gift card. So there's that good incentive to leave a review, whatever you fancy. Uh, obviously, we love it when people leave us good reviews, but let us know how we're doing. Be honest. Um, yeah, tune in next time. We will see you then. Jack just wants to get away. Do, 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 do.